Like a lot of undergraduate-focused, smaller institutions, historically black colleges and universities typically went online selectively, sporadically, or not at all. But that's beginning to change, thanks to significant multi-college collaborations and help from funders increasingly recognizing the value and importance of these under-resourced institutions. Hello, and welcome to The Key. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed and host of our news and analysis podcast. Thanks so much for joining us for episode 73. In the last few months, Inside Higher Ed has written about several major initiatives in which philanthropies, corporations, and nonprofit organizations are working with groups of HBCUs to strengthen their ability to reach and serve students by improving their digital infrastructures, training their faculties, and launching a joint platform for virtual courses. The efforts are designed to help historically black colleges, which have lagged their peers in online education, begin to catch up at a time when the COVID-19 pandemic has turned online education from a nice-to-have to a core part of most institutions' futures. Featured on today's episode is Ed Smith-Lewis, Vice President for Strategic Partnerships and Institutional Programs at the United Negro College Fund, which is at the fulcrum of many of these efforts. He discusses how HBCUs have historically approached online and digital education, why those institutions are drawing so much attention and funding now, and the opportunities and challenges of getting numerous colleges to collaborate rather than compete. Before we start today's discussion, here's a word from this week's sponsor. This episode of The Key is sponsored by Pearson Inclusive Access. Make the change to day one access and give your students an affordable option and an equal opportunity to succeed from the start. Visit go.pearson.com slash inclusive access to learn more. Now on to my conversation with Ed Smith-Lewis of UNCF. Well, Ed, welcome to the program and thanks for being here. Ah, thank you for having me, Doug. It's a pleasure to be so, here. So UNCF announced last week that it was launching a new online learning platform for its members and their students. And that's just one of a bunch of things that you and UNCF have undertaken uh, sort of in this digital learning sphere in recent months. And it's part of an even larger array of activities that HBCUs collectively have been involved in in this space. So before we drill down into HBCUV and some other specific initiatives, how would you describe what we're seeing on this digital landscape broadly when it comes to HBCUs? That's a good question. Um, You know, I'm known to be a bit crass. I would characterize it as by any means necessary. Um, I think what what happened in March of 2020, we're now been two years uh, into an unprecedented pandemic, um, was both a blessing and uh, a curse uh, in many ways. Uh, I think the push to have everyone finally sign in to a piece of technology to facilitate education not only showed some of the many disparities that we have in this country uh, around the digital divide, access to te- quality technology, both the hardware and the software of it, as well as the comfort and use of it, but it also said there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity for us to maybe release some of those sacred cows that we've held for so long and say, what if we use technology in the vein and possibility voice lens that we've delivered that sort of physical education? Um, and what we've seen is HBCUs lean into something out of necessity 
And then you've seen the field say, and how can we support this? And how can we encourage more of it? Um, and so for me, uh, what's happening today are many HBCUs are uh, tinkering um, to say the least, with what the world of the possible is for their institutions. Some of them are jumping into the deep end, partnering with OPMs to get fully online courses. Others are just helping their, uh, I like to say, seasoned faculty just understand and feel comfortable leading an engaging conversation online with their students. But at all respects, we're seeing every institution prioritize online learning um, as a future necessity for their institution, and they're doing it in whatever way they can. So how would you characterize the state of play for the private HBCUs that you work most closely with and, and HBCUs generally pre-pandemic? I had certainly had a sense that like a lot of less wealthy institutions, which yours mostly are, they were sort of lagging in certain ways. But how, what, you had been obviously working on some of this stuff pre-pandemic. So how would you, what was going on pre-pandemic and, and how would you characterize where HBCUs were and some sense of why? Here's the reality. The reality is there's always been a desire for HBCUs to be in an online space. Um, at the end of the day, there's an attack on higher education and you're either becoming a behemoth in terms of number of students you're enrolling or you're concerned that your future is bleak. Um, for HBCUs who have been at the bleeding edge of bleak uh, since their founding, you know, this idea of increasing enrollment has been a number one priority. And we've seen the proliferation of online, especially with your Harvards and your Stanfords and your Yales, finally leaning in and leaning in quite aggressively into the online space. It's opening up the possibility that, hey, this online thing might not be the second rate institutional learning opportunity. It could be not only a viable learning space for students, but a new business model and revenue stream for institutions struggling to engage. And so I, did, I do think there are numerous examples of HBCUs being online prior to Hampton Online being one of the most significant ones, but FAMU offering programs. I think you saw uh, Benedict College moving to have an online program prior to the pandemic. Uh, and uh, I think it's an MBA, right? And so there were movements in the space, but nothing to the level or closing the gap between those institutions that have leaned all the way in and where HBCUs are. And the primary reason for that is resources, right? At the end of the day, the HBCUs had to invest in the tech infrastructure, the professional development, the shifting of curriculum two decades ago. Uh, and to close that gap in just a year, it's virtually impossible. Um, to close that gap over a lifetime when you're always operating at the margins of resources, you know, you deprioritize it. And so what HBCUs did, well, you know what everyone loves about an HBCU is that familial environment. And so they over-indexed on that family environment and said, you know what, tech's not for us. And you saw that. You saw that as a, not. and, you know, I question whether it's the chicken or the egg. Did they do that because they couldn't or did they do that because they had to? Um, and I think what you would recognize is HBCUs, if they had the option to be online two decades ago, they would have moved online two decades ago. Um, but that was a privileged opportunity for a set of institutions that, as you said, are lower resource. And so where were HBCUs at the start of the pandemic? 20% of HBCUs had online degree programs compared to 54% of the rest of higher education. So we were not in the online space. And then many times when we did have an online program, it tended to be a graduate degree program and a specialized area of study and not something that was heavily enrolling students. 
students, right? A lot of the institutions that we saw experiment least with virtual, digital, online forms of education were primarily undergraduate, heavily residential institutions, a lot of the liberal arts colleges, and a lot of those a lot of your members are those places. Right. Uh, there obviously are some institutions that have big graduate uh, footprints as well. So, so they were like some of those institutions in certain ways. Plus, you throw in the resource constraints and and you know, kind of doubling down. So, obviously, we have seen uh, the pandemic again, sort of forced experimentation and forced everybody, students, faculty staff and departments into virtual settings, et cetera. How do you feel like the institutions on balance handled it? And what's your sense of, uh, again, putting aside sort of the resources that we're starting to see flow in, but putting in terms of the interest in, the willingness to, to play in that realm, did it win over skeptics to some extent? Did it whet people's appetite? What's your overall sense of that? Takeaway is, I think we all know online is not going away. Now, whether you agree with the pedagogical practices or how it's delivered, whether you're solving for the innate struggle of students in their one or two bedroom apartment because you know they have a family of five and they can't really study or may not have access to consistent internet, we know online is a future mandatory modality in the learning process. At least as an option for as some number of students. Well, as an option, we did a survey, um, and we'll get to HBCUV shortly, but we did a survey of our residential students on campus. 95% of them said, would love to take a class online, but be on campus, mm-hmm. right? And I think what you're seeing- For that flexibility. It's and, the and flexibility. The other, yeah. It's, yep. it's the flexibility, yep. it's the options, it's the ability to maybe yep. connect with a professor that you just wouldn't have, wouldn't have yep. the option to because there are physical limitations, either geography bound or classroom size bound, that the online environment just opens up in a fundamental way. So even for your high touch residential campuses, if you're not planning an online strategy, you're missing the mark for future generations of students. I think that became increasingly clear. The second piece um, that I think became clear is that students are still engaged in the learning process. That despite being online and this fear of like losing attention and not being able to deliver a high quality education, I myself took a whole class at Harvard, a whole program (laughs) at Harvard in the pandemic. As a full-time professional, I would have never had that opportunity had it not been for Harvard's quick shift online. What I would say is I learned so much in that class and I was so stressed out uh, that whole time that this idea that online is easier, I think is a fallacy of thinking that we finally got to test and see itself. Now it does come with challenges, right? Because at the end of the day, you can develop a highly engaging course, right? You can do your waterfall questions and you can do all the unique tricks of small group discussions and all the things that I think we learn to do uh, better uh, in the online environment of recent, but at the end of the day, if a student's internet drops, all right, or if a student goes on mute and falls asleep or goes off camera, you don't have that extra set of accountability measures that make it difficult for students that are strayed. 
I mean, I think what we realized here is online works for a certain student type. It may not work for all student types. And so the big question that we're asking ourselves is, what does hybrid learning really look like in the future? And how do you allow for that flexibility, but still that point of connection with an individual where that accountability has been held, where that sort of camaraderie, sense of belonging, that hug <laughs> that you just want when things get tough, where does that happen? We think that could happen in wholly online programs that are just being intentional about when a student should show up to certain activities, events, connect, right? I think the question now, and I think where the field is, I think where most faculty are, is how do we use online as opposed to denounce it? You mentioned before the specialness of the HBU experience. When you think about sort of the HBCU way online. What are the elements of that? And how do you go about embedding that, differentiating maybe that from other online initiatives? Uh, I don't know how important that is to what you're doing with HBCUV, but I'm guessing it's something you want to sustain. So, yeah, 100%. Uh, we all know differentiation matters. Uh, I think for HBCUs, if you know the space well, differentiation has hurt us, right? The fact that we were different, founded for a different purpose, uh, to educate a certain student population, the fact that we are historically and presently under-resourced, um, <laughs> uh, undervalued, our reputations aren't as uh, great as some of the faculty and decision makers in that reputation space, I won't get into the rankings. Um, you know, it's been a challenge for us. Um, and when you see the bright spots in our community, they're often glossed over um, because our whole community of institutions, HBCUs that are, are seen collectively as less than, right? Now, the reality is if you disaggregate uh, outcomes on input-adjusted measures, you know that HBCUs punch above their weight. They're critical um, engines of economic mobility and economic opportunity in the communities that they serve. And from a cultural standpoint, they've been cornerstones to the Black community. And dare I say, the number one solution to economic mobility, closing gaps, driving justice conversations in the Black community of any set of institutions in our country past or present, right? But all of that's discounted when you look at amount of resources, endowment levels, and ultimately graduation rates. And so we said to ourselves when we were creating this, well, how do we take that differentiation and yield it for its power? Well, one of the things that we've learned through an HBCU experience, no matter how challenged the resources, no matter how, how stretched the faculty or staff, if you ask any HBCU graduate, what was the most important thing about your HBCU experience? They would say it was that familial, high-touch environment where I not only felt belong, but I felt challenged to grow bigger than who I am. I mean, the Gallup USA study that came out about six years ago, they just redid it again, confirmed it for the second time, that on every measure from social well-being to financial well-being to just sense of purpose, Black HBCU graduates outperform Black graduates from non-HBCUs. And so there's something special there. There's something happening. What we said to ourselves as we set out to launch HBCUV, um, the first and only online solution developed by Black colleges for Black colleges, is we said, well, how do we reimagine, not replicate, not introduce, not change, not improve? How do we reimagine 
what an HBCU experience would be like in a virtual space. What does that mean? That means first we had to distill what we call the secret sauce of the on-campus experience. This is not the full list, but we know at HBCUs, it's a safe space for Black joy and expression. How do we think about a safe space for Black joy and expression in a virtual environment? We know at HBCUs, it honors rituals and traditions. Well, how do we honor rituals and traditions in a virtual environment? In many cases, how do we make those new rituals and traditions in a virtual environment? It's an opportunity at HBCU that you see yourself. You look across the campus and you say, hey, that person looks like me, but not like me. And that actually gives me a better self-efficacy on who I am in a world that typically puts the pressure and burden on me to be more than just myself, to represent my community. HBCUs, that don't happen. So what would that be like in an online environment? How do you build upon legacy, right? HBCUs are very thoughtful about ensuring that you understand that legacy matters. And for many of us, 400 years ago, that legacy was cut off. How will we reimagine what it means to create legacy from afar in distant locations? How do you facilitate that in an online environment? We think the tools are there, right? You think about synchronous engagement, the fact that I can see you real time in person, I can introduce you to my home and you never step in my state, right? The fact that we can have real conversations, we can do meetups, we can talk to each other, we can track data, right? We think there's a way if you just ask, if we were to reimagine how Black colleges would use these technology tools, how would that be different or not? Um, and so what we're doing ultimately here at um, UNCF and with an engagement of nine HBCUs at the center of the work, and I want to be clear, we are doing inclusive design with lower resource institutions, which means we're going to go much slower than some of the big behemoths will at taking advantage of these opportunities. But for us, at the end of the day, uh, we think if we ask the question right, there are six things we have to do with HBCUB that will facilitate our success and differentiation. Number one is we have to promote black excellence. We have to start speaking about what our community has done and continues to do in a way that's baked into the curriculum, baked into the pedagogy of learning. We have to focus on creating black futures, which means we have to understand where students are and give them a path to where they wanna go in a way that really takes into their context their starting point, but also what the world of the possible is beyond what they came to college wanting to understand. And so we're looking at the different tools and mechanisms to do career exploration, understand your innate capabilities, et cetera. We have to focus on creating black talent. That's both ensuring that there's an employer at the end of the day, but there's also a process from the start to that employer that says, here are the skills, tools, abilities you need. We've talked about flexibility. Uh, our students, we learn 34% of them held full-time jobs. 42% of them have part-time jobs. Three quarters of our students are, have other responsibilities outside of education. So we know we have to put flexibility first. What that means is we think we're partnering with a bunch of institutions because we're lower resource to provide that same experience. And then the final two and probably the most important is we have to use data in unique and novel ways that not only give feedback on the student and assess them, but provide that feedback to the faculty and back to the institution. And then ultimately, we use all of those things to activate what we call collective genius. We think if we're able to utilize the galvanizing mechanism of online to bring together more thoughts, more differentiation, more diversity of the HBCU experience, that's what's gonna make the HBCUV a differentiating factor in the market. 
Now, ultimately, my belief is if I'm a student at the University of Michigan and I heard about that one great professor that taught that one great class at an HBCU, this is not just attractive to new students that want to come to HBCUs or current students at HBCUs. This is attractive to the many students who didn't have that idea of what is it like to learn in that kind of environment? Well, now you'll have access to that. The HBCUs have, as you said, been historically under-resourced, and what I'm about to say doesn't meaningfully alter that. But the institutions are having what seems like a real moment now when you consider the Biden administration's focus, Mackenzie Scott's unrestricted gifts, all the companies and philanthropies that are coming out of the woodwork to form partnerships with the colleges. I'm curious, A, what you think is driving it, how much you think it's attributable to Black Lives Matter or to other factors. But probably more significant is how important to the work you're doing is that increased recognition of the HBCU's relevance and value. I'll give you a short answer, necessary but not sufficient. And then I'll follow it up with the long answer. At the end of the day, HBCUs, as I said before, from their founding have been under-resourced, right? Getting pennies on the dollar from the federal government, from state governments, even their tuition has been to the left of the bell curve or what they would consider their non-HBCU peers. Um, They also operate enrolling 75% low-income students, 60% first-generation students. And so even the idea of staying competitive from a cost of tuition standpoint seems inappropriate for these mission-driven institutions. And so what happens is we are stuck to use what we have Um, There's a moniker within the HBCU space doing more with less. It's a real statement, right? When you talk to faculty, when you talk to senior administrators, they talk about having five, six, seven commas in their title because they are the person, if they're a doer, doing all the things on behalf of the institution. And so then you say, well, I wonder why this is the case, right? Because when I look at what I like to call the uber-rich university, the uber-rich university, on average, 19% low-income students, probably a similar number of legacy students who are likely fourth, fifth, potentially even six, seven, eight generation college graduates. And you say, well, why are all those resources going there? Well, the best thing you can do is just look at the history, right? They got an initial investment in some cases 400 years ago, Harvard University, right? And they've been building on that now where they're at a place where resources aren't the issue. And so they make up things like free tuition for anyone that make any families that make less than $125,000, right? For low-income underrepresented student, that's a great selling point. It's a selling point that HBCUs can't contend with. So then what happens is our best and our brightest, according to academic ability, and we know that there are many enabling factors that make that very difficult statement, and I hate using it, right? But at the end of the day, we're then taking on with our fewer resources students who have more baggage, who have a longer road to travel to get to their ultimate destination. And then we complain about HBCUs not having the outcomes, but we don't talk about the inputs that went into those outcomes. So I'll start there. So then COVID hits, everyone goes into shock. The country, the world is for the first time in a long time collectively shocked whether you are at the top of the pay scale or the bottom of the pay scale, your life was disrupted for a moment. And it was in that moment that we're in our homes and contemplating life and considering the roads and decisions that we've traveled or made or traveled that we said, whoa, the world is fragile. And then as we all sat in our homes and watched on television, 
we witnessed the untimely death of George Floyd. And the people who believed post-Obama or during Obama, where he lived in a post-racial America, said, wait a minute, even in this time of huge crisis, these things still happen. And I think it activated in our world a heightened sense of consciousness that we haven't had for a while because we were too busy living out our individual lives. But in that moment, the world got to see collectively feel an undeniable truth. And it was in that moment, people said, well, maybe I have blinders on in other spaces. And, you know, while I love Mackenzie Scott's gifts, I actually thank Patty Quilling and Reed Hastings, who I believe opened the floodgates. They made the first significant investment. Prior to Patty Quilling and Reed Hastings, 120 million, 40 million to Morehouse, 40 million to Spellman, 40 million to UNCF that was then distributed to our other 35 members, right? The largest single gift to any HBCU was the Spelman College for $37 million in the mid-90s. The top 10 gifts ended with a $5 million gift. On the top 10 list, there were just three institutions, Morehouse, Spelman, and Howard. Now, they continue to reap the rewards of this moment in time, but for the first time, someone said, maybe I should look differently at the metrics I've been weighing to make investments. And once Patty Quilling and Reed Hastings made that significant investment, I think it opened up the eyes. I think the next big move uh, was the Community Foundation of Memphis said, hey, Lemoyne on College, you've been a pillar in this community and we've underinvested in you, another 40 million. And then Mackenzie Scott did something that none of them did. They said, she said, do what you need with the money. And that I think, when you start to think about how this started to unfold, I know, I suspect, because I don't know, because I'm not in those meetings, but I suspect Reed Hastings, Patty Quilly, maybe leaned over to McKenzie and said, well, what are you going to do? I'm sure McKenzie leaned to her friend and said, what are you going to do? And that's how it happens. It takes that moment where you witness something that disrupts your norms. You open that aperture a bit to see there's a different way of looking at things. And I think then things happen. Now, the big question and the reason why I say it's necessary but not sufficient is, what does this look like five years from today, 10 years, and ultimately generations ahead of us? This episode of The Key is sponsored by Pearson Inclusive Access. Make the change to day one access and give your students an affordable option and an equal opportunity to succeed from the start. Visit go.pearson.com slash inclusive access to learn more. Here's part two of my conversation with Ed Smith-Lewis, Vice President at UNCF. Ed, getting colleges to work together seems surprisingly difficult. How key is this cross-institutional work to accomplishing what you want to get done? And what are both the advantages and the disadvantages of that sort of collaboration? Important context, at least from a UNCF perspective, because I think we're known for our mind is a terrible thing to waste. We are the largest scholarship provider outside the federal government, but we were founded as a shared service. In 1944, when our presidents came together, and these were presidents of small, private, grossly underfunded, <laughs> grossly undercapacitated Black colleges, they came together to activate a fundraising shared service. They said, if we pooled our resources, do we have the ability to grow the pie for all of us? And guess what the answer was now, 80, nearly 80 years later, emphatically, 
Yes. And we're still working at it. And we're still working at it because at the end of the day, systems change lives. Individuals don't. We can praise Spellman. We can praise Howard and Morehouse and North Carolina A&T and Xavier and Tougaloo and Dillard all on an individual level. And we would never get to that change in outcomes for populations without looking at the strength of all of our communities. Now, I'm talking about HBCUs, but this goes for tribal colleges. It goes for rural colleges, community colleges, any any institution without an endowment above a billion dollars. You need to be thinking about this because the cost of higher education has been the highest growing price indice since the bubble burst back in 0708. And what we're seeing is growth in higher education, which is on the decline overall, is being buttressed or supported by low-income students. So there is a challenge that is facing us, and we are going to hit a point where higher ed and its costs will burst. And the unfortunate piece is it's going to burst for those institutions on the lower side of the resource standpoint who are educating many more low-income students. And so then you say, well, what is the solution? Well, one solution is to fix yourself. (laughs) How do you make those individual improvements on your campus? And guess what? That'll have incremental impact. You'll increase your retention or your graduation rates by two or three points, perhaps even four, uh, or you may do a Georgia State and after 15 years at it, close some equity gaps. But you still won't solve for the community need And quite frankly, you won't solve for the need for all institutions. So you have two options. One is to become the behemoth. And they're starting to talk about these institutions they're calling national scale enterprises, where they're enrolling 100,000 plus students all over the world, right? That's one way. The other way is to go back in time and get an endowment that's worth a billion dollars today. A little bit more difficult, (laughs) but find a way, make a way. The other way is to reach across the aisle and say, How can I work smarter, not harder? And how can I let go of the things that don't fundamentally matter to me? One of the things that we've been talking about with our institutions is they see us as a system of less than institutions. How can we operate as a system to get the benefit of what that system, what that push looks like? And at the end of the day, it doesn't mean merger. Because you hear in the the field all the time, oh, these schools need to close or they need to merge. No, they need to strategically align. Because many of the processes, the approaches, the tactics in higher education are the same. What makes an institution different from the other is its mission and its culture. And I fundamentally believe that there are ways that institutions can work together, still maintain their mission and their culture, but, you know, sign that same contract on property, plant, and maintenance, right? Or agree to share some courses with each other because we don't have a measure of quality in higher education. And if you look at the curriculums, they're nine times out of 10, mostly the same, right? But then if we start to think differently about what ownership means, what it means to differentiate yourselves and not look at everything having to be differentiated, but look at who you're trying to serve. And one of the big things we've been pushing here at UNCF, again, membership association, shared service since 1944, is what if we focus less on institutional effectiveness and sustainability and more on community and student outcomes? And when you shift that lens to the populations you're serving, you realize that a lot of those sacred cows that we wanted to hold up and we had to do, actually we can let go of 
to spend more time serving that community and those students that we want. And so we're talking about things like, as you saw in our faculty online development, like let's share that development practice as opposed to building each our own teaching and learning center. Let's build one teaching and learning center that services all of us, that uses the best. I go back to that idea with HBCUB. It is the collective genius. And I say that not because it's a black only solution. <laughs> like this solution fits anywhere. If you can be mission aligned <laughs> with another body, with another entity, organization, et cetera, there are real possibilities if you can let go of the way it's always been done. And so the hard part for us, and you talk about what's going to slow us down, what's going to slow us down is the need to shift mindsets and to shift behaviors. Because one of the hardest lines, and it hurts me every time I hear it is, well, this is how we've always done it. And when you ask them, well, why have you done it that way? Very few have a reason. And when you start people at a white sheet of paper and you say, is there a different way to do it? You find that you not only innovate on that solution, but you keep many of the principles and tenets of it. You're just doing it in a fundamentally more efficient and effective way. And that's what we're focused on here. Recognizing that this is a long game, how will you be judging your progress and success five and maybe 10 years out? I used to work at McKinsey and we worked, worked with Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, if they change, if they transformed a product, a team, an organization in five years, they were top tier, right? You get into higher education, just know it's longer. And I think Georgia State is always my best example. And people see the like new shiny object, but know that they've been at that for a decade and a half, if not longer. Um, so in five years, for me, it's all about like mindsets and systems and structures. Uh, we fundamentally want our institutions to start seeing each other as resources as opposed to competitors. And that's throughout higher education, right? This idea that there's a limited stock of students needs to go away because there are not enough students being educated adequately by our system. And so how do we flip that on its head to say, how can we be more inclusive in the learning environment? We think that that's number one, shifting that mindset of higher ed as an inclusive uh, solution as opposed to a commodity. Like we got, we got to kind of get out of that. Uh, number two, within that same five-year time frame, is that we built in the mechanisms and the systems necessary that allow for knowledge sharing, that allow for resource sharing and flow of information across institutions. What that means is we both set up the governance within an institution and articulated the sharing between institutions, right? Number three in the, in the short term is that we're seeing a new level of resources at the institution, whether that's reallocating existing resources to new activities or new resources coming in, a la McKinsey Scott, we need to shift what federal government as well, we need to shift what it means to fund the institutions that are working with our most difficult populations. So that would be my five year, um, just really fundamentally thinking differently about that. 10 years, I, I hope to see double digit increases in the actual outcomes on the campus. And that's real measures that we're tracking now. Um, and when I say double digit increases, I should have said sustained double digit increases because throughout this last five years working with the set of institutions we've worked with, we've had blips where it's like, whoa, and then you get disrupted by COVID and you don't know what's real, <laughs> right? So we're really struggling with that, but we're looking for a sustained impact. So incremental shift, 
from maybe 34% graduation rates to 41%, but we want to hold that for as long as we can, because that's the new plateau on which we want to get. So we, I want to achieve new plateaus with institutions in the tenure frame. Uh, tenure frame, I think institutions are fundamentally sharing resources in a way that they've never done before. Right? We, I mean, just look at any of the multinational organizations. Their headquarters are in one place, <laughs> but they have 172 offices across the world, right? But that we have centralized real work in a fundamental way and that we see the benefits of sharing. Because at the end of the day, we think the sharing increases the pie versus cut, uh, decreases it. The third piece, uh, 10 years, is the conversation around what's a lower resource institution and are HBCUs relevant? Like, it's like a no more, right? Because the outcomes are real, uh, the, the, the proof points have been made, and the students are our biggest advocates, right? Because now we've done away with all the challenges that hold most of our students back from being an advocate for the institution today. That's 10 years. Um, beyond that, we're talking intergenerational things, 25 years plus, right? Uh, I, I hope we're disrupting poverty uh, in this country. Like that's that's the ultimate goal. Um, we know that higher education is the number one ticket to the middle class for most of us. It's not guaranteed, but it is the number one. And we believe if we can increase the rate of graduation rates at HBCUs, who represent three percent of H, three uh, percent of all higher ed institutions, enroll nine percent of all Black people in college, but produce nineteen percent of the bachelor's degrees in the world, and on most measures outperform. Or, social well-being and economic well-being and community empowerment, imagine if we tripled that number. What does that mean to shift outcomes in communities? Because one thing we don't talk about, and I would love for the researcher, whoever's listening out there that has access to the research, the ripple effect of HBCUs. Um, we're discussing this work, I believe it was with Xavier University, their number one producer of black medical doctors. Well, it's also interesting that HBCUs are the number one producer of all medical doctors in the aggregate for black people, but where they go is the most important part. Most of them going back to low income underserved communities as opposed to becoming the you know plastic surgeon in Hollywood, right? And so there's that like ripple effect that we don't even measure in addition to the individual outcome. And I'm really looking forward to the day maybe a generation from now, we're talking about the community impact on the whole populations, whole regions, and not you know, the graduation rate of one individual institution. That was Ed Smith-Lewis, Vice President for Strategic Partnerships and Institutional Programs at the United Negro College Fund. Thanks to him for his thoughtful insights and to Pearson Inclusive Access for its sponsorship of this and the next two episodes. Today's conversation was interesting to me because a lot of the trends and themes of the moment course through it. The extent to which the pandemic has or hasn't changed the landscape for virtual learning, the tendency or disinclination of colleges to form partnerships to get stuff done, and perhaps most of all, the growing recognition of the importance of minority-serving colleges given the historical and lingering inequities in higher education. These are issues that we will continue to explore in subsequent episodes of The Key and I hope you'll come back soon. For now, I'm Doug Letterman. Stay well and stay safe.